everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Things I Haven't Even Told My Therapist. I was supposed to have an interview this week, but in post-editing, we decided to table it and re-record it another time. Good thing is, I'm never short on lived miserable experiences, and I thought with the semester starting next week, it'd be a good time for a little check-in as to where I've come so far. So, settle in for another episode of pure, uninterrupted Connor Lloyd coming right at you. Wait, never mind. Just enjoy and grow. The first focus point throughout this journey has been improving my self-reflection and self-acceptance. I have learned that I need to take my bad feelings for what they are and learn how to turn them into something productive. I'm going to read an excerpt from my blog, which, if you haven't checked out yet, can be found in the Instagram bio link tree, but if you have, bear with me, because I'm going to talk about having bad days. As my outlook on life improves and I try to create a healthier relationship with my struggle between anxiety and drinking, having a bad day can be extremely unpromising. At gut reaction, it destroys my hope that things will eventually get better. The dread of stacking days like these up as I used to gets heavier and heavier. I've noticed that in the past 50-ish days, my general depressive condition seems to have waned and been replaced by an ebb and flow of astonishing, unmovable anxiety. What I have to keep in mind is that even though I might be having a rough day, life goes on around me. And while I'm a strong believer in allowing yourself the ability to take a mental health day, that's not always a possibility. This means that even if my heart rate has been well over 100 all day, as my Fitbit proudly reminds me that I hit my goal of quote-unquote zone minutes, and I can barely put together the willpower to take my mind off whatever it is bothering me, and I do not have the ability to find someone at a moment's notice in order to talk myself down off that ledge of minor panic, I have to find a way to push on and complete whatever tasks are necessary of me on that day. As I've gotten further into this journey of self-reflection and healing, what I've found is that when I get into bed at the end of these tremendously miserable days, physically exhausted from my body literally giving everything it has just to keep me going through even the most menial tasks, I fall asleep with a smile. Now, I promise it's not some masochistic self-pain kink, so let me explain why. I used to rely heavily on others to pull me out of that funk. But, as outlined on episodes 1 and 2 of the podcast, due to the faults of my own inability to confront things sooner and find peace within myself in the first place, that is no longer as free of an option. Thus, I've had to create new strategies in order to keep on a focused path and carry out my daily tasks. One thing has been to look inward and remind myself of the temporary nature of the current anxiety, as one of my favorite Tom Hanks clips, where he discusses the idea of, this too shall pass being whatever feelings are tempting you at the moment, whether they be the strongest of highs or the lowest of lows, feelings come and go. And you got to understand that whatever they may be, you got to find your center. You got to come back to neutral in order to address whatever issue or great success you are having at the moment or might even have in a little bit. Another thing I do when I'm able to get a free minute is take a long reflective breath, a skill I learned from my high school football coach as outlined in episode four of the show. The goal of this is to center my thoughts on the sound and feeling of my breaths entering my nose and filling my lungs. This tricks my mind out of its chaotic loop. When I'm able to exit the cyclical nature of negative self-talk, I can attempt to provide rational explanations to myself for whatever is currently giving me anxiety. I once had a coach tell me, you feel better about your day when you push yourself through at least one really shitty thing. While my days of racing sets of wall climbers and wind sprints until my legs and shoulders don't work are behind me, that sentiment is something that still holds. In fact, it might be even more true 
when that shitty thing you overcame was just your generally miserable and inescapable state of being created by your own mind. So when that one shitty thing is your whole day, and for the first time in a long time, you got through it relatively alone in your own head, and you are finally confronting the issues and working on equipping yourself with tools to continue improving your responses to your anxiety in the process, it feels pretty good. I mean, as I write this, I'm still flooded with anxiety of what's to come, but at least I can have a laugh at myself about it and know that tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up, manage the shit out of some D3 basketball, and probably feel at least a little better than I did today. And that's enough for me right now. As long as I can keep making even the most minor improvements, then that's really all I can hope for at the moment. And I'll take it. Now, with that in mind, I'll read an excerpt from a book I've been reading lately. Confidence doesn't come from the inside out. It moves from the outside in. People feel less anxious and more confident on the inside when they can point to things they have done well on the outside. Fake confidence comes from stuffing our self-doubt. Empty confidence comes from parental platitudes on our lunch hour. Real confidence comes from mastery experiences, which are actual lived moments of success, especially when things seem difficult. Whether we are talking about love or work, the confidence that overrides insecurity comes from experience. There is no other way. Now, that quote meant a lot to me because as I've gone through this process, finding meaning in those difficult times It's just so assuring to know that it does come to something. Now, this book I quoted is called The Defining Decade, Why Your 20s Matter and How to Make the Most of Them Now, which was written by psychotherapist Meg Jane. One of my good friends has been recommending this book to me for about two years now, and after having done it, I wish I had done it so, so much sooner. One of my greatest sources of anxiety has and probably always will be the future. It is the thing over which we have the least control, despite everything we do in the present having the gravest of consequences on your tomorrow. I will be doing an episode on both this book and one other at some point because I do highly recommend it, and it has been greatly helpful in my journey to improve my current state. Not only did I find a lot of great advice as I read along, but it also relieved my sense of loneliness in how I feel in some mind states as all 20-somethings are struggling to cope with their place in life in different ways. It stems from a lot of different but surprisingly similar aspects. My depression manifests via laziness a lot of the time. When I hit a rut or a snag, I tended to stay there pretty egregiously. Whether it be stress about school or romance or internships for next summer, God forbid, I tended to just let myself wallow in sort of hopeless misery instead of trying to actually go out and do something. Another quote from this book that I liked was from a guy named Dale Carnegie who read, Inaction breeds fear and doubt. Action breeds confidence and courage. If you want to conquer fear, do not sit at home and think about it. Go out and get busy. Now, this hit me like buckshot to the chest. I do feel so much better about my day when I do something productive or go out and face my struggles head on. As far as hope for the future, I'll share another excerpt from the book that really improved my outlook and has been incredibly motivating to me, both in personal and professional aspects of my life. There is a certain terror that goes along with saying my life is up to me. It is scary to realize there's no magic. You can't just wait around. No one can really rescue you. You have to do something. Not knowing what to do with your life, or not at least having some ideas about what to do next, is a defense against that terror. It is a resistance to admitting that the possibilities are not endless. It is a way of pretending that now doesn't matter. Being confused about choices is nothing more than hoping that maybe there is a way to get through life without taking charge. And I took that personally. 
When I got stuck in the mud, I tended to table everything that would have been so much more productive to address head-on. I've started to live on a more steady schedule, balance and weigh the important things in life, and realize the importance of setting goals for myself. Because, as the book says, even simply having goals can make us happier and more confident, both now and later. In one study that followed nearly 500 young adults from college to the mid-30s, Increased goal setting in the 20s led to greater purpose, mastery, agency, and well-being in the 30s. Goals are how we declare who we are and who we want to be. They are how we structure our years and our lives. Goals have been called the building blocks of adult personality. And it is worth considering that who you will be in your 30s and beyond is being built out of the goals you are setting for yourself today. So, with this book in mind, I began to improve my self-reflective abilities upon my bad habits formerly used to approach stress and anxiety, the biggest one being avoidance. As I have addressed in nearly all my episodes, avoidance of any number of level of personal matters only feeds the negative thoughts and habits that allow anxiety to only build. The broad tactic of attacking negative thoughts head-on has been my biggest leap over the past month. I did not get anywhere productive letting my anxiety get the best of me and giving it the ability to distract myself from the person I desire to be. Building habits that get me off the couch and provide a more healthy lifestyle help keep my thoughts and actions more productive, and in the process allow me to build a great deal more confidence as a person to chase down that version of myself that I know I can be. Obviously, with this has been an increased focus on physical health by getting outdoors, eating healthier, and getting myself to the gym. These seem like simple tasks, but under the wave of anxiety and depression that I used to let conquer me without a fight, avoiding these activities allowed matters to get the best of me time and again. But in the middle ground of a great push for widespread productivity in my daily life, one must allow themselves the time to rest. With that in mind, another point of emphasis in getting healthier has been improving my sleep habits. The importance of sleep will be addressed in a later episode and on the blog, But from a broad standpoint, all aspects of physical and emotional recovery happen during a good night of sleep. However, this was something that is not always the easiest when your brain is flooded in a sea of anxiety-provoked overthinking. In the past, using things such as melatonin or z have really been my biggest tool and biggest crutch in trying to get better nights of sleep. But in order to get myself healthier, I have to learn how to do that in a productive way and mostly on my own. You see, getting to sleep is only half the battle. Staying asleep when your brain is flooded with anxiety and your subconscious is able to create dreams that wake you up and send you into a panic attack becomes a whole nother battle in the process. One tool that has really helped me get to sleep, using the breathing technique I outlined earlier on this show, or other means of distracting my brain like counting down from 100. And whatever that technique may be for you, it really just helps to find anything that can help your brain from circling down the drain. As far as staying asleep goes, the self-reflective tools that I've been working on help me confront the anxieties before I go to bed and close them off until I can address them consciously the next morning. Now, this doesn't always work, and sometimes my anxiety does wake me up in the middle of the night, but it's certainly a lot better than it used to be, and as I improve myself and improve my self-reflective habits, these things will hopefully fall in line as well. Now, my third point of emphasis has been thinking about my drinking. At this point, I stand at about 50 days without a drink, but I've really been spending a lot of time assessing my personal relationship and experiences with alcohol. It's allowed me a lot of time to reconsider how we use it as a society. Now, before I get into this, I promise you I'm not going to try to be preachy. I'm an expert in nothing, even myself, if this show goes to prove for any of that. 
I'm just trying to spark conversation and prompt growth. Now, about two years ago, I heard about a film called Another Round when it won the Oscar for Best International Film. While it strongly piqued my interest at the time in the midst of COVID and my unwillingness to confront my own struggles, particularly with alcohol head-on, I put on the ever-growing list of movies that I want to watch and probably will get to. Now to simplify things, I'll read the summary as given by IMDb. There is a theory that man is born with half a mil too little, aka that we're all born 0.05% blood alcohol too low. The idea is that the alcohol in the blood opens the mind to the outside world. Problems seem smaller and creativity increases. You know it well. After the first glass of wine, the conversation lifts, the possibilities open up. Now Martin is a high school teacher. He feels old and tired. His students and their parents want him terminated to increase their average. Encouraged by the per male theory, Martin and his three colleagues throw themselves into an experiment to maintain a constant alcohol impact in their daily life. If Churchill won World War II in a dense fog of spirits, what could the strong drops do for them and their students? The result is strong in the beginning. Martin's class is in a different way now, and the project is being promoted to a real academic study with the collection of their results. Slowly but surely, the alcohol makes the four friends and their surroundings loosen up. The results are rising, and they really begin to feel life. As the objects go inboard, the experiment progresses for some and goes off track for others becomes clearer and clearer that alcohol can generate great results in world history, but that all daring can also have consequences. Now, basically, it just describes how some of them go off the deep end with their experiences with alcohol and how it used to be something so great and fun, and it becomes a huge negative aspect in their lives, which is definitely something I could personally relate to. What I got from this is the thought-provoking nature of thinking about how, as a society, we view alcohol. We view it as a social medium, we view it as something that everybody does, but it can have such drastic negative side effects. And I've seen those both firsthand and in my peers. Now, for all the good we view it for, the alcohol industry is a monster. Between 10 and 20% of drinkers have 10 plus drinks a day, and 20% of drinkers fund 80% of the entire industry. Thus, the ideas that we bring to the construct of alcohol are brought to us by an industry that profits on the struggles and hardships of so many individuals. Now, I'm not saying to stop drinking, and I know I personally won't either, but it's definitely interesting to think about how much of your willingness to drink is founded by those social principles and those constructs. I know I myself use it as a social crutch a lot, but I found in engaging at social functions in my time off from drinking. Obviously, you miss out on things like the games and you feel a little awkward mingling with people that are perhaps way more inebriated than your sober state. But it's something that even myself, shockingly, was able to do with relative ease and comfort as the time went on and I got more used to it. Now, with all that said, I find myself in a much better spot than I was when I first started this podcast. My outlook has greatly improved, and my bad days, even if they are just as severe as the old ones, seem much more confrontable. I look forward to using these techniques and tools as I approach school for the first time in the most healthy headspace I've had in as long as I can honestly remember. Now, I will continue to keep you updated throughout my journey and as I return to using alcohol in a social setting. Keep in mind that the best way to stay the most in the loop as my progress and 
other resources that I will find and pull in and try and educate along the way will be found on my blog. As I've struggled due to the constantly rocky nature of my family situation, I always found the most comfort in my friends. While my ability to have real emotional discussions with my family members has improved with time, I've always prioritized my peer relationships over familial ones. This will be a theme as I approach the second stage of my own journey and this podcast, bringing on people who have been right there with me through it all. I can't wait to share their stories, my stories, and our stories together. I will see you next time, and most of all, I can't wait to keep growing with you.